Well, thank you for having me back. It's always nice to be welcomed so warmly. Um, when I return, always nice to catch up with some of the familiar faces that I uh, know and remember. This is a passage that I preached a couple of weeks back in Nidre as part of an ongoing series in Romans. It's certainly not what you might consider an easy passage of Scripture to preach. But as has been said a couple of times this evening already, it is a very important passage to grasp correctly. So before we jump in, let me just pray. Let's ask God to help us understand and uh, apply what he's saying to us in our own lives. Let's just take a moment to pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement and the challenge that it brings to believers and unbelievers alike. And Lord, we pray this evening that you would help us to concentrate, to have our hearts and our minds focused on your word this evening, that you would speak to us, that you'd challenge us and encourage us, and that you'd just be at power by your Holy, uh, by your Holy Spirit uh, at work in power the, this evening. Lord, help us to understand and apply these things to our lives, we pray. Amen. It's often quite difficult just to jump into a passage of Scripture as complex as Romans 7 without having the broader context. So what I'd like to do is just very briefly give you a quick recap of Romans. We've got chapters 1 to 3, where Paul... The Apostle Paul, the author of Romans, has laid out quite a a full theology of sin. He's driven home the fact that sin, that rebellion against God, is a reality for every single man, woman, and child living on the face of this planet. We know in the words of Paul that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All, that's without exception, all have sinned. And as a result, each one of us is guilty and stands convicted before God, the supreme judge, for our rebellion against him. So we have this sin problem. In chapters 4 and 5, Paul states quite plainly the total pointlessness of thinking that we can deal with our own sin in our own strength and somehow find acceptance with God by ourselves. Our sin is a putrefying stench in the nostrils of a perfect God. And there's no deodorant of morality or law that can cover up that stench. There's absolutely nothing that we can do. But the gospel of his son, again, Paul's words, is that what we were unable to do, God did for us. And it's only through Jesus Christ the Son of God, sacrificed for us on the cross that we can be made right with God and have Jesus' perfect, sinless righteousness applied to our lives. We move on to Romans 6, where Paul hits home the awesome and wonderful reality of our union with Christ and the truth that through Christ, the power of sin and death has been broken. And so we hit chapter 7 our focus this evening. And this is one of the most controversial and uh, contentious passages 
in the New Testament. Paul explains that although the power of sin has been broken, the presence of sin still remains. So I've called the sermon this evening, The War of the Will. And hopefully that will become uh, obvious as we go through. Perhaps if you've closed your Bibles, you'd uh, be best to open them again to Romans chapter 7. Page 1133, if you're using the church Bibles. It'd be useful to keep these open as we go through, because I'll be referring to the text as we go along. As Donald said, it's a complex passage of Scripture. Uh, So let's keep it open in front of us. And I've split the passage into three bite-sized chunks, which will hopefully make it easier to navigate and find our way through this evening. The first first chunk, the first passage that we're going to look at, I've called the limits of the law, and that's from verses 1 to 6. And Paul begins with an analogy, an illustration from marriage, something that would be familiar both to those uh, under the Jewish law and those under Roman law. Let's take another look at it for yourselves in verses 1 to 6. This woman is bound to her husband as long as she lives. Death breaks that bond and frees her to marry another husband legitimately, that is, without committing adultery. Now, before we dig into what this little section is, let me just first clarify a couple of things about what it's not. Firstly, people have tried to take this passage and turn it into a meaningful text, a meaningful teaching about marriage, about divorce and adultery. But that's not Paul's concern here. There are other New Testament passages that deal with this specific issue, and if that's of interest to you particularly, I would point you to those other chapters. The second danger is that you try and interpret these verses as uh, what's called an allegory. That would mean that Paul is trying to give each detail in the story a consecutive point of meaning uh, or application. Again, that's not Paul's intention. In fact, when you think it through, Paul's example kind of breaks down when we notice that the law doesn't die. We die to the law. So look at verse 1. The law has authority over a man only as long as he lives. Now death generally generally signals the end of your commitment to anything. In the history of the Roman Catholic Church, there's an ugly event which is known as the Cadaver Synod. Pope Stephen VII ordered that his predecessor, the former Pope Formosus, uh, ordered that his dead body be exhumed though he'd been dead and in the grave for six months. Stephen VII had the former Pope's corpse carted into a courtroom where it was made to sit upright on a chair. And the trial, of course, was a farce. You see, the law only rules a person so long as they live. So what is Paul trying to illustrate? When we trust in Christ Jesus, when we give our lives to him, When we die in Christ, Romans 6, and belong to him, we as believers are freed from the marriage to the law so that instead we can be married to Christ. We've finished with the letter of the law. It has no more claim on us. Death ends this first relationship and makes the other one possible. At a wedding, 
the couple tend to make marriage vows to one another. I'm sure we'll be familiar if we've not made them ourselves. If you're a Christian here today, you are the bride of Christ. Imagine the following vow. I, Jesus, take you, sinner, insert name here, to be my bride. And I do promise and covenant before my Father to be your loving and faithful Savior and bridegroom, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness or in health, to love and to cherish for all eternity. Let's look at what the effect is on our lives. Let's um, turn to verses 5 and 6. And remember that Paul's speaking to fellow Christians. It's a, a picture of the old life before we became Christians, when we were in the flesh and held captive by sin. The sinful, self-centered appetites resulted in death. And that's the same for every unbeliever. And what I want you to to ask you at this point is, uh, where do you stand? Do you recognize your sin is bad and want rid of it? Do you recognize that you're a sinner? Are you trusting in Jesus as your Savior and as your Master for the forgiveness of your sins? If you are, praise God, you're a Christian. You're one belonging to Christ. If not, then woe to you because you're still bearing the full weight of God's wrath on you for your sinful rebellion. And the verdict is already in. Soon the sentence will be passed and that sentence is death. Eternal punishment in hell awaits the enemies of God. Have you given your heart to Christ? Have you been married to Christ? I, sinner, take you, Jesus, to be my Savior and Lord. And I do promise and covenant before God to be your loving and faithful bride, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish for all eternity. In Christ, we know the joyful reality of sins forgiven, of conscience cleansed, death defeated, and life without end. The power of sin has been broken, but the presence of sin still remains. What may surprise us from these verses, if we're following carefully, is that the sinful uh, passions, according to the NIV in verse 5, are aroused by the law, we're at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. Did the law stop us from sinning? No. Did it save us from the effects of sin? No. In fact, the sinful passions were aroused by the law. So Paul tells us that our old husband, the law, actually made us behave worse than we would have behaved without the law bearing fruit for death. And so to bear better fruit, we had to marry a better husband. 
Well, so far, Paul hasn't really had too much positive to say about the law. So before we get all kind of bent out of shape about it, let's uh, just clarify a few things that, that Paul says. And so we turn to the second chunk in the passage, and we move from what's quite a theoretical principle to quite a personal testimony in this next section, uh, the sinfulness of sin. Verses 7 to 13. And what Paul's saying in this middle chunk is that the law, far from being evil, is good. The problem, the problem is not a bad law. The problem is a sinful me. In fact, this whole section is framed by words in praise of the law in verses 7 and in verses 12 and 13. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me. The law is good. It was a gift given by God to his children, the nation of Israel, to help them relate correctly to the world, to themselves, and to their gods. It was a good thing. But the trap that they fell into was that they began trusting in the law to save them, not in the Savior who would come and did come in fulfillment of the law. A few weeks back at college, as part of our youth work in a multicultural context class, we were visited by an Orthodox Jewish lady who came to speak about her faith, about her religion. And this was followed the next week by a visit to the synagogue in Glasgow. And as she explained all of the laws that she had to keep on a daily basis, I was just amazed. The Sabbath regulations, the Passover regulations, not being allowed to turn on a light in your house in the Sabbath, not being able to turn on your cooker. All these things that she has to do, get rid of all her uh, regularly, regular daily dishes at Passover, clean the kitchen completely, top to bottom, new dishes in for the Passover week. No having milk or any dairy products within three hours of uh, having any kind of meat. All these laws that she was so diligently fulfilling. And in a sense, I suppose I had to admire her diligence. But at the same time, I was just profoundly sad, saddened by the whole experience. What does she think she's achieving? What is it she's trying to achieve? Her discipline and devotion were commendable. But she'd missed the point of the Old Testament law. What a terrible marriage moralism would be. Doing everything according to some kind of moral codes rather than for the sake of love. Love for the husband. Love for Christ. Paul reminds us in Romans 3.20 that no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. So the law shows us what sin is, but it cannot save us. In Romans 7 we learn that the law actually stirs us up to even more sin. Let's take a look at what it teaches us. Firstly, if you're following the points on the screen, 
the law exposes sin. Let's have a look at verse 7b there. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law, for I would not have known what coveting was, what coveting really was, if the law had not said, do not covet. We need to remember that there was sin in the world before the law. And Romans 5, 12 and 13, we read this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account where there is no law. So sin is as, as old as Adam and Eve. It's been the human problem ever since the fall. Even without the law, people are still without excuse. And in Romans 1.20, we read, For since the creation of the world... God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Romans 1 verse 20. The law was given to Moses by God on Mount Sinai. But we know that that wasn't the beginning of sin. Imagine just by way of an illustration, a pitch black room can't see a thing you can't see your hand in front of your face but the torch in your hand reveals a chair that's in the corner of the room now the torchlight doesn't create the chair the chair exists regardless of the torch's light in the same way the law sheds light on sin and exposes it for what it truly is utterly sinful paul uses the example of coveting we probably know that the last of the Ten Commandments that Moses uh, was given by God in Mount Sinai said, Do not covet. It says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or his maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. That's in Exodus 20, verse 17. So Paul says in verse 7, For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, Do not covet. And so through the law, Paul got a realistic vision of who he really is. And we, through the law, get a realistic vision of who we are. God says, do not steal. Can any of us, with integrity, look at our lives and say that we're not a thief? God says, do not lie. Are we not liars? He says, have no other gods before me. And what an idolatrous people we are. The law exposes sin. I wonder, do you feel exposed? But it also activates sin, and that's the, the second thing there. Romans 7 verses 8 and 9. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. Paul looks in the mirror of the law and he sees a sinner. He firmly decides not to covet, but then all he can do is covet. He's full of coveting. 
the more he tries not to covet, the more he covets. When you're commanded to do something and not to do another thing, what's the natural human response? Rebellion. Here's an example to, again, try and illustrate the point. Imagine this time you're sitting in your boss's office by yourself. And as you wait for your boss to return, your eyes begin to wander around the desk and the clipboard and on, the, uh, on his desk at the computer. And on the desk in front of you are some letters already opened from this morning's mail. There's a few dull letters, some office supply catalogs. But then you notice another sheet with bold red lettering across the top. The words read, private and confidential. If you, if you see where I'm going. What's your heart telling you to do? You want to read the letter, right? As soon as somebody sticks private and confidential on something, uh, suddenly that page becomes more interesting. That's the one that you want to look at. It's human nature. It's deceitful. It's idolatrous. It's covetous. It's rebellious. And for Paul, the law exposed sin. The law activated sin. And the law is, thirdly, exploited by sin. Turn to verses, seven, uh, verses 10, beg your pardon, to 13. Verse 10, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means, but in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. The good law is kidnapped by sin and used to bring about condemnation and death. And as a result, the utter sinfulness of sin is seen in its ability to take something as, as good, uh, as great as God's law, and make it result in death. God's law exposes sin as utterly sinful. And sin proves its utter sinfulness by exploiting the good law to stir up in us more sin. We've always been sinners. We may not have recognized our sin, but it was still there. When the gospel came into our lives and confronted us with God's standards, we began to see the depths of our sin. And since that time when we came to know the Lord Jesus as our Savior, there's been this ongoing revelation of the depravity and utter wretchedness of our hearts. And the further down this road that you travel... The more you progress in this Christian journey, the more you get to know the word of God, the more horrified you are at the filth that's within our hearts. Some of you as older Christians, I'm sure, will testify to that. Will you not? So sin becomes utterly sinful. Thirdly, the third point. The frustration of failure, and this is looking at verses 14 to 25. 
the third section in this evening's passage, certainly the most personal and pastoral section in the text. So if you're dozing a little bit, I know it's warm, beautiful outside, doing well, stick with me. This section is one of the most contentious and debated parts of the New Testament. The question is over who is speaking. And there are really three main options with notable Christian writers and scholars and theologians that will line up behind each point, behind each argument, and present their case. There's three options. Either it's Paul, the Christian, or it is, secondly, Paul speaking dramatically on behalf of an unconverted person, perhaps drawing on his experience as Saul before he met the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, before he became Paul. Maybe he's drawing on that experience as an unconverted person. Or thirdly, perhaps Paul is speaking dramatically on behalf of the so-called carnal Christian, someone who's sort of half-converted, perhaps a, uh, somebody who's still relying on the law to make them good. For various reasons, which I could literally spend hours going into, I'm convinced that Paul is simply portraying the experience of an ordinary, normal, bog-standard Christian. So we've moved from Paul describing quite a theoretical principle in verses 1 to 6 to a description of his past experience in verses 7 to 13. And now as we move on, we see this description of his present experience, verses 14 to 25. Let's just read 14 to 16 there. Verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. This passage kind of summarizes my relationship with the sport of golf. My dad will know what I'm talking about here. Don't know if you can empathize. Don't know how many of you are golfers. But you know that shot that you want to hit that you can never hit? And that bunker that you so desperately want to avoid, you always manage to get. You can't do what you want to do. And the thing that you don't want to do, that's the thing that you do. It's frustrating. How many of us can relate to the experience described in this passage? What we'd like to do, maybe, is get up an hour or two before we need to go to work and spend time adoringly in the presence of our Father through Scripture uh, and through prayer. How many of us would like to do that? Let's have a quick show of hands. You're not so used to audience participation, but yeah, we'd like to do that, wouldn't we? But then what happens? We spend a little bit too much time in the evening watching TV. We watch that extra episode of that program we like. And we manage to sleep in instead. Do you relate to that experience? It's frustrating. That's just a fairly trite example as well, but how many thousands of believers have stood before their pastor, before their spouse before their accountability partner or counselor in a state of frustrated desperation and said, the things I want to do, I can't do, and the things I don't want to do, these I keep doing. How many of us find our lives just dominated and consumed by the sin? 
We have a, a desire in our heart to do God's will. And only, only the believer has a, a heart desire to do God's will. Be obedient to God. But how hard it is. Verse 16 in the New Living Translation says, But if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. He knows what he's doing is wrong. And that proves that the law which he knows he's flaunting is good. Turn to verse 17. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. Twice there he says it's no longer him that's doing it. Is he trying to shift the blame? Or somehow deny responsibility for his actions? No. He knows he's responsible for his sin. But it's so out of step with what he desires in his innermost heart to do that it's almost as if he's not doing it. It's as if he's having like an outer body experience. Watching the actions with some sense of detachment. Paul recognizes the principle that even as a believer, evil is present with him. Verse 21 says, So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin at work within my members. Three words in this section that we should notice that help us Understand the believer's ongoing battle with sin, this war of the will. Here's the first one, verse 21. I find this law at work. Sin is like a law, like gravity. You can't just decide that one day you're not going to be bound by the laws of gravity and perhaps float to work instead of getting the bus. You can't choose to live your life free from its effects. In the same way, you can't live your life free from the effects of sin. The second word is this, verse 23. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind. Sin is a war. I think often in Christian circles we over-glamorize the concept of spiritual warfare in the church. And perhaps we need to be reminded that spiritual warfare is actually quite a mundane thing. Fought in the small situations of everyday life. In our cars as we drive, as that driver like cuts us up. We get all angry and riled up. Maybe that's just me. Our desks at work. As we maybe struggle with issues of integrity there. In our bedrooms. In our kitchens. As we lose our rag at our kids, perhaps. Every minute of every day, there are minor skirmishes going on all around us. 
And here's the third one, verse 23. Waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. Sin is a prison. We are prisoners to sin. So there's two forces at work within them. There's the old man and there's the new man. In Galatians 5.17, we read that for the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other so you do not do what you want. Galatians 5.17. But there's a fourth word of significance in this section that helps us to understand this believer's ongoing battle with sin. Sin's a law, sin's a war, sin's a prison, sin is also, uh, I beg your pardon, verse 24, what a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? We need rescued. Rescue is the fourth word there. A struggling Christian who's trying to live up to God's standard alone is doomed to frustration. Doomed to frustration. We need a rescuer. We need Jesus. The word wretched there, what a wretched man I am, refers to a miserable and distressed condition. Paul is at the very end of himself. And having come to that end, exhausted, he's at the place of grace. This is where God meets him. And actually, he's in a wonderful shape. Wonderful shape for God to work in his life. You may be interested to know at this point that there was a fourth option. Uh, As I was referring earlier to that controversial question, who wrote this passage? I submit to you that the man who is speaking in this passage is actually Mike Stark. I know the theology. I've experienced that crippling sensation of defeat. Yet time and time again, in my pride, I go back to trying to do doing things my way. And grace comes only when I say, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? That's the main reason why I'm convinced that this is Paul describing the authentic experience of a bog-standard, normal Christian believer. Because it's so close to home. It hits the nail right in the head. Only Christ can deliver us. That's where grace comes from. That's why he says in verse 25, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Be careful to have reasonable, realistic expectations of the normal Christian life in yourself and also in other believers. Don't be too discouraged by the presence of of indwelling sin. The struggle is a sign um, sign of life pointing to that day when we'll enter into the presence of God and that struggle with sin will finally and eternally be over. 
be aware that we'll never fully win that battle on any front this side of our resurrection. And this is a reality for all Christians. It happens to good Christians. It happens to great Christians. It happens to super Christians. For goodness sake, it happened to Paul. I don't think this was a phase in Paul's Christian development that sometime later he grew out of. This is the normal experience. And I want to finish today with the first three verses of Romans chapter 8. The next chapter. By means of an encouragement. Verse 1. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. Romans 8, 1 to 3. But the law was powerless to deal with our sin. We need God's grace working in us by his spirit day by day. Even still, it's a constant struggle. And we need to pray daily and deeply for the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit ministering to our hearts and lives. I'm sure that as Paul grew in faith and in fellowship with God, his experience would be much more in line with the experience of Romans 8 and less and less the experience of Romans 7. But by no means do I think that Paul would ever have escaped the experience of Romans 7 altogether. When we go out alone, we get pulled down time and time again, no matter how hard we try. So the normal Christian life is one that lives day by day in urgent need of the grace of God. Though the Spirit of God has invaded our lives, there's still part of us that's fleshy. And it will be like that until we're reunited with our bridegroom. And so we have this tension. It's called living between the now and the not yet. Already we've been saved Already we've received that justification, that salvation through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Already we've been forgiven of our sins and have been adopted into God's family as his children. Yet we await that day when Christ will return and we will be like Christ. We'll be resurrected from the dead, perfect and imperishable. When we'll live with God in purity and joy and praise him in his glory forever Amen we're going to sing a final song that really 